Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, Bernie Sanders, last time around in the primary one, 46% of the pledged delegates. People said that was impossible. He got more than a million individual donations, an average of $27, famously. I mean, the accomplishments, he completely changed the dialogue around the Democratic Party and what's possible in America. The guy who did it all, Bernie Sanders, has announced he's running for president. And Bernie, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Tom. It is so great to have you here, and it's so great to hear that you are officially running for president. Tell us about it. There are so many issues that you literally have been the guy who was at the lead of, you know, whether it's Medicare for all or the $15 minimum wage or breaking up the big banks or free tuition or lowering drug prices, all the work that you've done over the years for veterans. Where do you start? Well, I think we start where we left off, and I think you raised the right point. As a result of millions of people standing up and fighting back, we have changed the definition of what is possible in the United States of America. And as a result, I think, of the 2016 campaign, people are saying, you know what, every other major country on earth has health care as a right, not a privilege. Why can't we? Countries around the world provide free tuition at their public colleges and universities. Why can't we? Countries around the world pay their workers a decent wage. Why can't we? And also, what is even more significant now is the understanding that we have got to be extremely aggressive in dealing with the global crisis of climate change. And that's an issue we're going to be talking a whole lot about because from a existential perspective, if we do not transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy, and by the way, when you do that, you can create millions of good-paying jobs. If we do not do that, 
we're going to be leaving our kids and our grandchildren, and I have seven grandchildren, a planet that is increasingly unhealthy and uninhabitable. So, Tom, those, you know, certainly are, are some of the issues out there, criminal justice, immigration reform. But the other obvious issue is the need to deal with the most dangerous president in certainly the modern history of this country. And it gives me no pleasure to tell the listeners what they already know, that Trump is a pathological liar. Uh, it doesn't matter what he says today, because he'll say something different tomorrow. Uh, he is a racist. He is a sexist. He is a xenophobe. He is a religious bigot. And, you know, it honestly gives me no pleasure to talk about a president of the United States in those words. But that is, that is the simple truth, and Trump must be defeated. And I believe, after a lot of thought, that I am the strongest candidate uh, to defeat Trump. Uh, I think we can win uh, in states that Hillary Clinton lost, states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, other states. And the third point that I would make, Tom, about maybe what makes our campaign a little bit unique is it is one thing to talk about health care for all. It's another thing to talk about raising the minimum wage or uh, the need to transform our energy system. But what I believe from the bottom of my heart, and you have heard me talk about this for many years on this show, is that the powers that be, the special interests in the fossil fuel industry, on Wall Street, the military-industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industry, all of these special interests are so powerful that the only way they can be defeated is through an unprecedented grassroots movement of millions of people who are standing up and fighting back. So it's not just ideas. Ideas are important. But we need to mobilize people. And today, what we are asking of people, you know, we're asking people uh, to contribute money. That's great. But more importantly, we are asking one million people in the next week or so to sign up and work on this campaign, to put together an unprecedented, historic, grassroots campaign, which not only will win the Democratic nomination, not only wins the general election, but also begins the process of transforming American society so that we have a government that works for all of us and not just a few. The second part is the really big challenge. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt became president, and then in 1936, when he was running for re-election, he was coming right out and saying, never before have the forces of greed hated such a candidate as much as they hate me, and I welcome their hatred. That pulling together of a coalition, pulling together the people of the country, is really going to be the biggest job and of Congress and everything else. How do we most effectively do this? Well, here's what we do. What Trump does is what demagogues historically have done. I don't want to give him too much credit. He did not develop this strategy. It's what demagogues have done for a long time. You represent the wealthy and the powerful, and you do that by dividing people up, often picking on minorities. That's kind of the history of this stuff. And our job is to do exactly the opposite. It's to bring blacks and whites and Latinos, uh, Native Americans, Asian Americans, women, men, gay, straight, native-born, immigrant. We bring our people together, and we demand a government which starts working for all of us and not just wealthy campaign contributors. So we have a fight in front of us to 
transform our economic and political life, to create a democracy of one person, one vote, not the Koch brothers and other billionaires buying elections, not voter suppression, not excessive gerrymandering, to create an economy which does not allow three people, and this is really unbelievable, and very few people talk about it. We got today, Tom, you got three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of America. You got the top 1% owning more wealth than the bottom 90%. You got 46% of all new income going to the top 1%. And you got a billionaire class that says, oh, hey, that's not enough. I need massive tax breaks. Let's cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. You know, it is really out of control. So we need to mobilize the American people around an agenda which people already support. And, you know, I hope that we can even reach out to some of Trump's supporters who now understand that he lied to them, as he often does. He told them that he would protect working families, and then he proceeds to try to throw 32 million people off of the health insurance they have. That's not protecting working families. He comes up with a budget after campaigning on saying, I'm not going to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as a budget last year. Trillion dollars cut in Medicaid, five hundred billion in Medicare, seventy-two billion in Social Security. He lied. So you know we got a lot of work in front of us. But to answer your question, our challenge is to bring people together around a progressive agenda, an agenda that in many ways is supported by the vast majority of the American people. Defeat Trump and then roll up our sleeves and take on the big money interests who exert so much influence over our economic and political life. Amen. And uh, last question, if people go to, I'm assuming it's berniesanders.com is your yes, campaign website. Correct. So if people go to the website and they say, yes, I'd like to be one of those million people, what is the range of kinds of help that people can offer? What so, sorts of so things? Tom, that's a great question. And, and I hope everybody understands this. Look, we know that there are some people, you know, have three kids and they're working full time. They don't have a whole lot of time. We will take whatever you can give. If it's an hour a week, Two hours a week, two hours a month, that's great. If you have more time, that's great. So, yes, we would love, you know, small campaign donations. But more important at this stage is to do what has never been done. Can you imagine, Tom, if in a couple of weeks we can announce that we have a million people who are prepared to work hard on this campaign? Wow. If we can do that, I think there is no stopping us. Yeah. Amen. Well said. Well, Senator Sanders, I wish you the very best. I am so pleased that you are in this race. And BernieSanders.com is the website, obviously. Thank right. you and so much. Thank you very much for all the great work that you do. It has been. Uh, a, in terms of being one of the great progressive voices on, on radio. So thank, keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Bernie. And thank you so much for being a part of this show for so many years and for being on our show today. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yes, we will. Take thank care. you. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily 
cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. It's a wonderful day. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. I was just singing Fred Rogers' song. <laughs> it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Oh, my. I am optimistic. And not just because Bernie announced that he's running. We've got a bunch of really great candidates here. And what makes me optimistic is that Bernie's original candidacy back a couple of years ago brought FDR's politics, brought the politics of you know, of deeply American values, of genuine Christian and Muslim and Buddhist you know, religious values, this core stuff of we're all in this together, that the purpose of government is to provide for the general welfare, the, the, the stuff that at the, at the founding of the Republic, even the lip service was being passionately given to, and in some cases, you know, being lived out other places, obviously not. But the point is that that, that conversation now is so different than the conversation that I remember between Democrats and Republicans in elections in, say, the 1980s, in the 1990s, in the, the first decade of the 2000s, and even different from the conversation, by and large, that was held until Bernie got into the primary, what, three years ago, or four years ago, however long ago it was. I can feel it. I can feel this country waking up and realizing that Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and right-wing hate radio, that these guys have been lying to us, that these guys have been creating a false reality, that these guys have been calling compassion weakness. Given that Bernie just announced, I would like to revisit a little bit of Franklin Roosevelt with you. Bernie, in my opinion, and Elizabeth Warren, absolutely, and several of the other Democratic candidates who are moving in that direction are the political heirs of FDR. FDR is the guy who literally invented the modern-day Democratic Party. Before that, Woodrow Wilson, he fought World War I. He was a racist. He played Birth of the Nation in the White House. He was a big fan of eugenics. I mean, just weird stuff and no real core principles that I know of anyway. I'm, I'm not a Woodrow Wilson fan. He was Democratic president before FDR. And then before that, it was Grover Cleveland. Probably the high point of his presidency was in uh, 18, or, yeah, 1887, uh, his second State of the Union address where he said that because of the combinations and monopolies that the iron heel of American industry is now upon the neck of the average person. I mean, it's a great speech. Look it up. But, I mean, that was about it, right? Prior to that, the Democratic Party had been the party of the South. It had been the party of the plantation owners. It had been the party of slavery. And the Democratic Party went through a really, really radical change, starting with FDR. And then from FDR to today, we also had Lyndon Johnson, who, yeah, the, uh, you know, the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, I was out there protesting it. Many of us were, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? But the reality, the parallel reality is that while he made a terrible mistake with that war, one that tormented him to his death, to the day he died, 
He also initiated the, the Great Society, which was a major program that cut poverty in, almost in half in the United States in less than a decade, and that Ronald Reagan and his, and his heirs ever since have been systematically taking apart. But the big point, I think, of Bernie's running for president is that if you just went back three, four, five years, right, just a couple of years ago, you could go back to the 2008 campaign, President Obama versus Hillary Clinton at the time, 2012 campaign, the 2016 campaign. In any of those campaigns, no candidate for president, except Bernie Sanders in 2016, was willing to give a full-throated endorsement to Medicare for All, to a $15 minimum wage, to breaking up the big banks, to free tuition at public colleges, to lowering drug prices, to having new labor laws that encourage union participation, to curbing corporate spending on elections. This is a list from Jeff Stein in today's Washington Post on Bernie's uh, agenda. Paid family and medical leave, gender pay equality, social security benefits. These are the things that Bernie ran on in 2016, and he's doing it again. He's adding to that this time, obviously, climate change. That's part of the Green New Deal legalizing marijuana nationwide, ending cash bail nationwide, and heavy taxation of wealthy estates, corporations, and the richest 1% of Americans, and closing the offshore tax havens. Now, the freaks on the right are all about, oh my God, it's socialism, it's communism, what does this mean? And that's the exact same thing they said about FDR. So I want to just play a few FDR clips here and give you a sense of the kind of dialogue, the kind of, the, the, and this is from 1936. This is when he'd already been president for four years, and he's running for re-election. And he's talking about the forces that he has been fighting for four years, bringing us out of the Great Depression. And he starts out by asking the question, what is freedom? What is freedom? You know, the, the conservatives today would tell you that freedom is not having to pay taxes and not having regulations so that corporations can dump all the poison they want into your water and air. I would submit that FDR had a little better definition. Here he is. That very word, freedom, in itself and of necessity suggests freedom from some restraining power. In 1776, we sought freedom from the tyranny of a political autocracy, from the 18th century royalists who held special privileges from the crown. So back in 1776, we fought for freedom against basically political royalists. And then he goes through this list. He starts talking about how, you know, since then we've had basically this industrial revolution and things have really changed. Since that struggle, Man's inventive genius released new forces in our land. And he, and he goes through a list of them, and I'm going to jump past the list and get right to the point here. For out of this modern civilization, economic royalists carved new dynasties. New kingdoms were built upon concentration of control over material things. Through new uses of corporations and banks and securities, new machinery of industry and agriculture, of labor and capital, all undreamed of by the fathers, the whole structure of modern life was impressed into this royal service. So we started out fighting against the royalty of England, 
And now this new royalty has arisen, and it arose through the Gilded Age of the late 1800s and then through the Roaring Twenties. And income inequality now is worse than it was in 1929. And in 1929, it was worse than it had ever been at any point in history. And that's what FDR is talking about, these economic royalists, the new kings of America. He continues along those lines, amplifying this point. Private enterprise, indeed, became too private. It became privileged enterprise, not free enterprise. And that's, that's really what we're seeing right now, too. We're seeing the growth of monopoly. We're seeing the growth of, of these dynastic empires. When you've got two billionaire brothers putting $800 million into an election, you know you've got something that doesn't resemble a democracy. And this is what FDR was talking about. He continues. Royalists I have spoken of, the royalists of the economic order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. And see, this is this, is this point of what is freedom? They granted that the government could protect the citizen in his right to vote, but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. And this was right after, by the way, the Supreme Court struck down minimum wage laws, child labor laws, and some unionization laws in the National Recovery Act, the NRA, the Blue Eagle. They actually struck that down. This is what FDR is talking about. He was fighting in that day against the Clarence Thomases and the Sam Alitos and the Neil Gorsuches and the Brett Kavanaugh's of today. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. And they're saying the same thing now, right? What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. This is how the Democratic Party talked four times this guy was elected president. This is how the Democratic Party looked at these situations. This, well, here he continues. Spain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. And, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, it's this cheap jingoism that you hear on Fox News and right-wing hate radio. Now, now as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny. 
for freedom, not subjection. There you go. Are you free if you're hungry? Are you free if you're homeless? Are you free if you're sick and don't have access to medical care? I don't think so. We need a new discussion in this country about what freedom is. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And by new, I'm talking about just kind of like all of us who are alive right now, because most people who were, you know, politically active during FDR's time when we had that conversation are no longer with us. Jesse in Miami. Hey, Jesse, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, hi, Tom. Congratulations to Bernie. He should have been president today. And I hope, you know, once you do become president, you get the job as a treasurer or the FCC or something like that. So, hey, but the question is socialism. Mm-hmm. Mr. Trump is making a big deal about eliminating socialism, keeping it from America. If that's his idea, he's, he might as well just get rid of government, because government is socialism. But to a large extent, yeah. Okay, if you want to get rid of socialism in America, where do you want to start? Do you want to do away with Social Security? Do you want to do away with the fire department? Do you want to do away with public roads? Where do we start? And to start with government, because government is social, and people are by nature social, but if you're going to throw all of that out the window, it's going to be jungle, dog-eat-dog. Yeah, spot on. You're absolutely right, Jesse. You're absolutely right. And that's the, you know... It's going to be a big one. Jesse, thanks a lot for the call. You always cut right to the heart of things here. Bernie Sanders, just to recap, whether you like Bernie or you don't, right? And I know that there are a bunch of people out there who actively dislike Bernie Sanders, right? I I get that. I see them on MSNBC. I read them over at Democratic Underground. People who, oh, Bernie bros, or oh, Bernie doesn't get race, or Bernie doesn't, you know, get women, or, you know, fill in the blanks, right? Hate on him all you want. But the simple reality is, five years ago, literally five years ago, maybe six years ago at the most, because, you know, going into the primary for the election, for the 2016 election, maybe not even that far back, no Democrat or very few Democrats. I mean, you had the, you know, Dennis Kucinich, right? Everybody, oh, Dennis Kucinich, they're firing a piece, uh, you know, UFOs. Oh, yeah. And people made fun of him, right? No Democrat was willing to step up and say, you know, every country in the world, every developed country in the world has health care for everybody except us. What's wrong with us? Every developed country in the world has free college education. What's wrong with us? Every country in the world has decent wages and the average rate of unionization across European countries is between 80 and 90 percent and we're at 6 percent. What's wrong with us? Democrats were afraid to talk like that. They were just like they were bound into this old third way, the new Democrats, the Tony Blair, Bill Clinton thing from 1992, from literally 30 years ago. This idea that, oh, we've got to become a little more Republican or something. And Bernie stepped up and no, he didn't win the primary. Uh, You know, and I, I, I really am not going to revisit those wars, but he changed the conversation in this country, at least within the Democratic Party. I think he changed the conversation right across the board. And that's a big deal. No matter what happens from this point out, that's a big deal. This is historic. You know, whether Bernie wins or not, this time Bernie is up against, I mean, last time it was Bernie versus Hillary. And we need not revisit that. 
but there were clear differences between the two. This time, Bernie's got some people running as Democrats. Well, actually one in particular, Elizabeth Warren and others who are picking up other pieces of his platform. But, you know, this time around, it's not just going to be, you know, Bernie. It's not going to be one of these binary choices. But that said, what's truly historic about Bernie Sanders and what he has done up to this point and you know, we'll see how this, you know, if he can pull together a million people over the next couple of weeks to say, yes, I'll give an hour to your campaign or here's 27 bucks or whatever. You know, we'll see how that shakes out. We'll see how much juice he still has. I think it's considerable. I think it's huge. But we'll find out. Right. I mean, you know, it's all going to be out there. But that's like going forward. But the thing that is so astonishing to me. And I alluded to this sort of in the beginning when I was, you know, when Bernie first called in and I was setting up the interview and I want to go a little deeper is that, I mean, just a couple of years ago, you were hearing things like, oh yes, we're all about hope. We're all about change. We're all about, you know, I'm with her. I mean, yeah, some of these slogans, but they didn't have the depth of policy associated with them that Bernie brought into the race a couple of years ago, quote, normal mainstream stream Democrats were unwilling, unwilling to endorse, for example, Medicare for all. In fact, I remember Bernie was on this show, as you'll recall, every single Friday for 11 years and over and over and over again, Bernie would be supporting John Conyers bill HR 676, or he started talking about Medicare for all when he joined the Senate. And this was, I think, five years ago, thereabouts. And he was on this show when this happened. He introduced a piece of legislation that was a Medicare for all bill, right? The whole enchilada, right? Here it is, Medicare for all. You know how many Democrats co-signed that, co-sponsored that legislation in the United States Senate with him? Zero. Bernie all alone. It never got to committee. It never got a vote. Nothing. Because no other Democrats were willing to say, ah, Medicare for all. That makes sense. Works in Canada. It'll save us $10 trillion over the course of the next decade. No Democrat was willing to say that. Bernie was talking about how every American should be able to go to college or trade school for free. Because we know, you know, this isn't an expense. It's an investment. We know that from, you know, our experience with the GI Bill. That for every dollar we invest in educating young people at the college level or trade school level, we make back over the course of their lifetimes seven additional dollars we wouldn't have had, we being the federal government, in increased tax revenue because they're earning more, because they're educated now. This is a no-brainer. And yet four or five years ago when Bernie was talking about everybody in America having the right to have a free college education and how it wouldn't be an expense, it would be an investment that will pay a larger return than the cost of the investment, same with healthcare, by the way. You got a healthier country, you got more productive workers, you have lower mortality costs, you have lower healthcare costs, you have more productive workforce. I mean, there's a reason why of the 34 OECD countries, 33 of them have national healthcare systems. There's a reason why of the 34 OECD countries, 31 of them have free college education. These are simple, I mean, this is just like not even rocket science. This is just common friggin' sense. And yet five years ago, there wasn't a single Democrat who would say, yes, I'm in favor of these things. And that has all changed now because of Bernie's historic candidacy. 
breaking up the big banks. Nobody was willing to talk about that out loud. Free tuition at public colleges, lowering drug prices. Yeah, that would get some lip service, but then people would say, but we can't have too much government regulation. Come on. New labor laws to encourage union formation. This is a list from Jeff Stein in today's uh, Washington Post, by the way, of the things that Bernie is running on and has run on. These are all things that are now parts of the normal conversation in the Democratic Party. Curbing corporate spending on elections, rolling back Citizens United or overturning a paid family and medical leave, gender pay equality, increasing Social Security benefits, raising the cap and making it making it uh, uh, making uh, Social Security solid. And a, a few of the new things that he didn't run on last time that he's running on this time, ending cash bail throughout the United States, legalizing marijuana throughout the United States, heavy taxation of wealthy estates, corporations and the richest one percent and closing off short tax havens. It's amazing stuff. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Whether Bernie wins or not, he has changed the conversation in this country for the better, in my opinion. And I'm very optimistic now going forward. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up, as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Karen Hobart Flynn is on the line with us. She is the president of Common Cause, commoncause.org. At Common Cause is the Twitter handle, and her personal one is at K Hobert, H-O-B-E-R-T, Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So glad to have you with us. I understand that Common Cause is one of a number of organizations and now uh, apparently a number of states that are going to be suing to stop Trump's so-called state of emergency. And I'm curious if you could give us kind of an overview of the basis for that, from where do you derive standing, how do you expect this to play out, and then I have another question for you. Sure. So at this point, Common Cause is not bringing a lawsuit, although we are closely looking at it. There are many other groups that are. As a matter of fact, Public Citizen, um, which is a group that we work in coalition with on behalf of landowners in Texas and an environmental group, there they'll be looking at the legality of seizing huge swaths of private, state, and tribal land to mm-hmm. build a wall along the entire border. We've seen the ACLU plans to sue, as well as the Attorney General for the state of California, both for the impacts it could have in California, including the impact of diverting other money to the wall. They are reaching out, and there will probably be many other states suing. And in addition, there could be a lawsuit by Congress. And I think there are three significant legal issues with Trump's declaration of a national emergency. You know, first, his claims about the national emergency have been been debunked by experts and many in his own federal agencies. If you recall, 
There was testimony by intelligence chiefs in January to the Senate Intelligence Committee where they outlined the biggest national security threats. They talked about North Korea, China, Iran, Russia, and never brought up the challenges at the Mexican border. Yeah, not to mention climate change. That's right. Also, there's no big surge in immigration. It's been declining for years. There's no terrorist invasion of Mexico. His claims of drug trafficking coming across the border is not true. And most illegal drug trafficking comes through legal ports of entry. Second, though, is also that there is no emergency that allows him to utilize the military in this matter. So his justification is to initiate military construction projects in the event of a national emergency. That necessitates military action, and it's only when there's a military action can a construction project come about. He's sort of flipping it on its head, really. He needs military action for them to build the wall. Also, the Posse Comitatus Act, which dates back to Reconstruction in the wake of Civil War, that prohibits military engagement and law enforcement activities with respect to civilians, which also means immigrants, unless Congress specifically authorizes it. So in fact, you know, they can't do this kind of measure. And then he undermines himself when he talks about calling this national emergency, and I think his own words can be used against him. If you recall on Friday, he talked about, you know, I didn't need to do this, but I just want to do it much faster when he's speaking about building the wall. Well, plus he had two years with the Republicans controlling the House, the Senate, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, presumably if this was that big a deal, he could have done something about it. It only became a crisis, A, when the Democrats got control of the House of Representatives, and B, when he really seriously kicked into gear running for his reelection for 2020, at least from where I'm sitting. That's how it looks. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually, you know, I do think that he is trying to just make good on his call and response line that he's constantly using when he does these rallies. Mm. Um, You know, he says that he gets this tremendous support um, from everybody there when he starts going into the need for building this wall. And I also think it's part and parcel with his continued attack on immigrants. And you're right, Republicans didn't want to do this, and they still don't, because the measure that they passed to avert a second government shutdown gave him very little of the money that he wants. And so, really, I think we have to be looking at Congress to see whether they are going to rein in this really dangerous precedent, um, this abuse of presidential power, especially given that over the last two years when Republicans were in charge in Congress, they didn't rein in his abuses of power. Right. And so I think that, you know, raises some significant questions. And let's be very clear, when he's talking about immigrants, he's talking about a very particular type of immigrant. That would be, by and large, people with more melanin in their skin, more color to their skin than, than he has. I mean, the, the Trump Organization just a few months ago applied to whoever they apply to to bring in a couple of dozen more immigrants to work at one of the Trump properties. I mean, they constantly are bringing in immigrants, but they're bringing them in from Western Europe, by and large, and Eastern That's Europe. That's right. But they, they want white people coming in. They just don't want people of color coming in. That's the bottom line. You said that to have a state of emergency that can then lead to construction, there has to be a military element to this, particularly if he's basically borrowing money out of military construction funds. Do you think that it's possible that there might be some sort of a 
false flag sounds a little too conspiracy-ish, but some sort of a confrontation. We've already seen once where Trump had the military lobbing tear gas grenades across the border into Mexico, that he might be looking for some sort of precipitating incident that he can say, this is the thing that justifies what I'm doing, and that he might even provoke that. I think that is definitely possible because I think on legal grounds, he has a very shaky case here. So there has to be, in my mind, something that precipitates the need for military action. To try to glass half full rather than half empty this, if Trump succeeds in having his declaration, if the lawsuits fail, presumably at the Supreme Court where he's got you know, good buddies, and We've basically rewritten the Constitution now to where the president, with the basis of this 1970s law, can change the provision that says only Congress can appropriate and spend money. If that all works for him, does that mean that the next president, President Warren, President Sanders, President Harris, President Booker, whoever it may be, if the next president is a Democrat, that that president could say, you know, okay, you know, Trump did this, he did it successfully, and he did it over a couple thousand people coming across the southern border. We've got a real climate emergency. We have a real existential threat to literally the survival of the human race, much less civilization in the United States. It's already killing hundreds of Americans a year. It's causing tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of damage already. And therefore, I, I, I am going, I, the president, new president, I am going to use a state of emergency to get done what Congress is incapable of doing because so many of them are being funded by the fossil fuel industry. I think that is the possibility. We could be looking at climate change. We could be looking at gun rights, all kinds of things. Although I don't think it's a given. There are, you know, a lot of things that can happen between now and then. One is I know that the House Judiciary Committee is launching an investigation into the matter to look at constitutional and statutory issues and let the president know that they're going to be calling on Department of Justice and White House officials to testify. I think it's possible that there will be a joint resolution that could get bipartisan support in the House and Senate if the president vetoes it. Not sure whether they can overcome that, but that's a fight worth having. Right. I saw Senate Democrats introduce a bill to prevent Trump from using Department of Homeland Security, Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Army Corps of Engineer disaster relief money for this wall. That could be a compromise measure that passes. I mean, what's at stake here that concerns me most is if Congress surrenders its constitutional authority over financial and budgetary matters, and actually its exclusive power to appropriate funds, right. you know, what, what does Congress stand for that yeah. completely eviscerates our checks and balances? Well, and the Constitution itself. It's really quite extraordinary. We're talking with uh, Karen Hobart Flynn, the president of Common Cause. We know that when Dick Cheney became vice president, Halliburton was on the verge of bankruptcy. And the war in Iraq was just a wonderful thing for Halliburton. Suddenly, became a billion-dollar company and very, very, very profitable, and his shares in it were worth millions as a result of that war. Do we know if there are any wall-building contractors or steel-making contractors who are in tight with Trump that might be kind of a secondary purpose for his obsession with this? You know, I don't know the answer, but that's a fascinating question that we'll look at. 
Yeah, because I mean, I, I just I, I look back at what happened with Halliburton and, and the whole thing mm -hmm. in Iraq. And and had it not been for the war in Iraq and all those no bid contracts that Dick Cheney basically walked down to the Pentagon, his company, because of the acquisition of Dresser Industries and not that huge asbestos liability. I mean, they literally were on the edge of bankruptcy. And yeah, yeah amazing stuff. Karen, thanks so yeah. much for dropping by. Thanks for having me. It's great talking with you. CommonCause.org, the website, Common Cause, the Twitter handle, and of course, Karen's is K Hobert Flynn, H O B E R T F L Y N N. Karen Hobert Flynn, the president of Common Cause. Thank you again. What most people don't realize about working in radio is that it's hungry work. I mean it. And you know cooking can seem like a chore, but that's where HelloFresh comes in. They take the guesswork out of cooking by offering a wide ranging menu with classics that we know and love, like the gorgeous greens farrow bowl or the delicious grilled sriracha glazed salmon to recipes you might not be as familiar with, courtesy of their gourmet menu. Get fresh and affordable, high-quality ingredients delivered right to your doorstep, pre-measured. So all you have to do is follow the recipe. It could not be easier. That's what makes HelloFresh America's number one meal kit. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Get a total of $60 off. That's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom. That's HelloFresh.com slash T-H-O-M. HelloFresh.com slash Tom. Back, John Marvin here with you. Interesting piece by Jennifer Rubin, who is a, a Republican. You know, and uh, old school Republican who writes for the Washington Post and she's on TV a lot these days and all that kind of stuff. And an interesting piece entitled How to Screw Up an Emergency Declaration in 10 Easy Steps. And basically she gives the lie, you know, kind of following on from our conversation with Karen just a moment ago. She gives the lie to Trump's assertion that we actually have an emergency on our border. Now, I would argue that we do have several actual emergencies. We have a climate change emergency. We have a, a middle-class income and wealth emergency. We have a student debt emergency. We have a healthcare emergency. We've got a gun death emergency. We've got an addiction emergency. And every single one of those things are legitimate emergencies, or legitimate crises. There's an old saying in business that one of the most important things that a manager can do, one of the most important decisions that you have to make is separating what's urgent from what's important. And, you know, something might be really important, but it's not urgent. And so you can work on it slowly over a period of time and you get it done. On the other hand, there are some things that are urgent, but they may not be all that important because they're urgent. They're right in front of you. You jump at them and, you know, do something and then you forget about the important stuff. And then, of course, the most important decision is figuring out what is both urgent and important. And I would argue that everything that I just listed is both urgent and important, and therefore could qualify as an emergency, depending on how you're defining the terms and depending on you know, what you want to do about what you're calling an emergency. But people coming into the United States seeking asylum from Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, from countries that basically are falling apart as a result of Reaganism, that is not an emergency. I mean, it is for them. And certainly it is something that we should be doing something about. But building a wall is not the what we should be doing about it. You know, that, that, that's not the, the way to deal with this. And similarly, you know, people from Mexico coming to the United States looking for work. You know, that's not an emergency. And there's easy ways to deal with this that, that we did for a century. But with Trump's saying that this is both urgent and important, 
First of all, he had the Republican Party for two whole years in Congress and did nothing about this. Therefore, it's neither urgent nor important. He was offered $25 billion for border security in exchange for legalizing the Dreamers. If it was a real emergency, you know, what, 800,000 people get legal status in exchange for $25 billion for the wall? That sounds like, you know, if it was a real emergency, I would go for that. Third, he had this continuing resolution that kept the government running. He signed it. Where's the emergency? He had a 35-day shutdown, and then he said, eh, you know, where's the emergency? Appropriators, you know, Congress, they actually reached an agreement, and Trump did sign that. No emergency. There is literally no report, nothing demonstrating that this is an emergency. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. But there are real critical emergencies, and we should have a conversation about prioritizing those and what we're going to do about it once the fossil fuel Republicans are gone. Dick in Champaign, Illinois, listening, uh, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Dick, what's up? Oh, I have a question about the Treaty of Guadalupe, which finished the Mexican-American War. Right. I have a report that says that a clause in that treaty guarantees free passage back and forth of Mexican and U.S. citizens, that that passage has never been repealed. That's an interesting question. I mean, that was that was in the 1840s. Uh, President Polk was the guy who signed that, was he not? Yeah. I would guess that even if the Treaty of Guadalupe, and I'm, I, and I'm no authority on this at all, Dick, I just, you know, I, I have some passing knowledge of that era. I would guess that even if that treaty guarantees the ability of U.S. And, and Mexican citizens to freely move from country to country, that there is some reasonable limit on that. You know, in other words, if somebody's a criminal, if somebody can't demonstrate their citizenship, it just seems reasonable. But this was before we started having these things. So I honestly don't know. That's a good one. Uh, let me just toss that out to everybody. And if anybody knows about that or has any more information on that than Dick or I have, we'd love to hear it. Dick, thanks a lot for raising that. That's an interesting question. Bill in Sunrise Beach, Missouri. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'm a progressive and I got a weird way of expressing my liking the idea of building the wall, but not Donald Trump's version. Okay. Roger Waters has expressed interest of doing the concert one more time on the Mexican-American border. Who is Roger Waters? Forgive my ignorance. Pink Floyd. Oh, Pink, Pink Floyd. Floyd. Okay. Oh, that wall. <laughs> that wall. Yeah. Yes. Build the wall one more time. Right. And show people because his message of you know, his his political message is good in in the uh, in the presentation. And in one case, uh, at the end of his tour that he did for three years in Argentina, I think he drew four hundred thirty-seven thousand people. Wow. And if he did it in the American border with with our political situation now, it might be a million. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know where he could get the land. I don't know. Some landowners who are concerned about having eminent domain and wiping their land out might offer him, (laughs) you can use some of our property to stage this event. That's interesting. I don't know, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm I'm sure you are familiar with Pink Floyd. I'll have to do some exploring on that. Bill, thanks a lot for that. uh, I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, Thanks. Bye. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas, joins us from the U.N. headquarters in New York. You can hear his two-minute newscast every day. Uh, Just search Luke Vargas wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Luke. Hi, glad to be with you. Great to have you with us. So we're just uh, five days away from this U.S. aid to Venezuela. What's the deal here? 
The plan on the U.S. part is basically to try and, and with the help of the Colombian authorities, get volunteers, apparently hundreds of thousands of them, a quarter million by one report, have already signed up to do this, to gather in uh, Cucuta at the border of Venezuela and Colombia and just try to walk over this international peace bridge through the checkpoints into Venezuela carrying aid by hand. I mean, it, it seems outlandish um and i and clearly these people are going to be turned away uh and is, I, is this by way of define yeah. maduro yes of course i mean yeah. the goal here is to either get you know actually successfully get through and get into the country though again these are you know truck drivers and other volunteers in in colombia who i don't you know they don't not going to be bringing passports with them they're not going to be are probably signing up to you know go into exile in Venezuela you know and hide from authorities i don't think right. a lot of thought has been put into this and i think the logic on the american side is as articulated by Elliot Abrams and people like him where they're just sort of hoping that this gesture is so overwhelming to the Venezuelan military that they begin to defect on the spot and wave people through it seems very, you know, uh, very much ignoring the the risk here, which is that you know, if you see individual Venezuelan soldiers defecting, who knows what might happen to those people? For as many soldiers as might defect, you might have some that decide to. This could kick off a civil war. People who are crossing over the border. Yes, I think the the possibility of violence here can't be ignored, and I I am just sort of continually in awe of the fact that as this date gets closer, there is no further clarification on the American part about exactly how this is all going to go down Um, and add to it now that you've got these two massive concerts being planned, one by Richard Branson on the Colombian side of the border on Friday. Now the Venezuelan government is apparently going to throw a two-day music festival against imperialism on the far side of the border. It's just going to be a mess of people, journalists, military folks, volunteers. I I have no idea what's going to go down. And I'm very concerned about this. As long as Elliot Abrams has anything to do with this, this guy is a war criminal, and it's just, it's so wrong. Anyhow, Democrats on Capitol Hill, according to these documents that we've recently seen, apparently the Mueller probe, are Mm -hmm. starting to look into no longer Russian money, but now Saudi money helping Donald Trump or influencing the White House. What's this all about? Yeah, we got a 24-page report this morning. I'm surprised this hasn't been covered in more places yet, but all of you can read the report prepared by Elijah Cummings' staff here at the House Oversight Committee. In 24 pages, details that multiple whistleblowers have come forward to the Democratic committee to warn of efforts in the White House to, quote, and I'll just quote two sentences here, to rush the transfer of highly sensitive U.S. nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia in potential violation of the Atomic Energy Act and without review by Congress as required by law, efforts that may be ongoing to this day. It basically Whoa. says that, uh, yeah, the Trump administration, it mentions in sort of a broad sense that the Trump administration's connections with Saudi Arabia continue to be, quote, shrouded in secrecy, raising significant questions about the nature of the relationship, end quote. It, it appears there is a consortium called IP3 International, which represents the American nuclear industry or various companies within it that are eager to do business in Saudi Arabia. They have been preparing talking points called a Middle East Marshall Plan which would basically involve them not, you know, rebuilding the Middle East for some grand humanitarian cause, but building dozens of nuclear power plants in countries like Saudi Arabia. And they, you know, who was the biggest proponent of this was Michael Flynn, who had signed up as an official advisor and remained one through the transition into becoming president. And as this report documents, 
at multiple times once he was actually in the White House is lobbying President Trump to, you know, embrace this as a part of American policy. He doesn't disclose these relationships in any of his documents to get uh, security clearances. Uh, the report goes on to say basically that these U.S. private commercial interests have been, quote, pressing aggressively for the transfer of this technology. Their commercial, uh, these, these entities stand to reap billions of dollars in contracts associated with the construction and operation of nuclear facilities in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and have been apparently in close and repeated contact with President Trump and his administration to the present day. And the reason this report is going public, according to Elijah Cummings' office, is that you've seen as recently as last week President Trump hosting uh, delegations from the American nuclear industry at the White House to discuss the sharing of technology to Saudi Arabia. Kushner is going to Saudi Arabia next week, and this report says you've got a proliferation risk, right, that we've been right. giving away technology that could be used to make a bomb. There's procedural and legal violations for rushing this through conflicts of interest, which could be illegal. And finally, that you know members of the administration have been ignoring warnings from the ethics office about conflicts of interest, which itself could be problematic. So something to watch. Are there any clues here that the Kushner family or the Trump family have been getting Saudi money? That's not in here, but there's a lot else. Look it up, uh, House Oversight Committee website. I'll check it out. Luke Luke Vargas. Luke, thanks a lot. Thank you. Laura in Champaign, Illinois. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. There is something that concerns me. There's a lot of talk about Bernie being too old, and I think this is wrong. We should not make Bernie a victim of ageism. Uh, we need to look at uh, people as individuals. There, there really are older, many older men and women in their 80s who are intelligently brighter, and more energetic, and wiser than younger people. Yep. And Bernie would bring a tremendous amount of experience, intelligence, foresight, and wisdom to the office of the presidency and is very capable of being leader of our nation. If if you remember the enormous crowd that Bernie was able to attract uh, when he was uh, in the race running for president, um, Bernie can win with, um, I believe, a younger female vice president like Warren or Harris. Mm. So I don't think he should be dismissed because he is, well, he will be 79 years old. I think that he is just very capable. And let's not make him a victim of ageism. Yeah, I agree with you. I, my, the only concern that I have with regard to his age is that he has somebody as vice president Um, Because, you know, we do get disabled and we do die, you know, at some point. It happens to all of us. It it will happen to all of us. Um, uh, You know, God forbid, but we have to acknowledge that, um, that he has somebody as a vice president who shares his values and can pick up and and run forward if anything, God forbid, should happen to him. But, uh, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Well, I, I could go on, but, you know, we've got a full board of calls. We'll pick up your calls. Ed in Belfair, Washington. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. If I could, I'd like to give a shout-out to Jefferson Smith. He did a great job filling in for you last week. Amen. Uh, um, As soon as the primaries were over, I put my Bernie for President sign up right away and changed it from 20 to 16 to 2020. Mm -hmm. I am thrilled to death, as I told your call screener, that Bernie's in the race. 
Yeah, me too. You know, whether he wins the race or not, he is going to have a huge say in the dialogue that is the race. And I think that that's just vitally important. This time around, I'm not planning on endorsing explicitly anybody, but I'm really glad that he is in the race. And if I may, I think that the more candidates in the Democratic Party that we have running is better for us because all those voices will be heard. So, and, but I'd like to see them basically be all on the same page. Well, that's not going to happen. I mean, you, you've got a variety of, you know, regional perspectives, a variety of perspectives on corporate money, on billionaire money in the in the election, different perspectives on criminal justice. I mean, there are differences in the Democratic Party, and that's actually a good thing. That's a, that's a healthy sign. That's the Republican Party has very very few differences, and that's how that's a sign of how essentially cancerous, you know, it's a rotted corpse essentially the the Republican Party now. But Ed, spot on. Thanks a lot for the call. Melinda in um, Abiquiu, New Mexico. Am I saying that right, Melinda? That's right. Abiquiu, New Mexico. Hey, what's, Tom. Hey, what's up? Um, I am so excited. <laughs> I'll bet you can guess why. Ever since he announced, I've been watching everything, the comments that are coming in, you know, the clips from MSNBC, Morning Joe. Are uh, you talking CBS about Bernie's is, candidacy? Yes. I'm okay. sorry. I should have said that. Sure. And the candidates are just overwhelmingly happy, positive, yay, Bernie. And, of course, I feel the same way. And I really appreciate your, you know, professor, all the talk you do about the climate change. It is a climate crisis. We've gone from global warming to climate change, and we are actually in a climate crisis. Yes. And I feel, I feel there's so many different issues, but I feel for the sake of my children and grandchildren, and probably even us, right, we're already experiencing it. We need a fearless, uncompromising warrior that will be bold, that will not be dissuaded. The only person I can see fulfilling that role is Bernie. And as far as Bernie's position on people of color, uh, you know, and I've, I've already seen them, you know, he, he can't get the black vote and all that. If you, there's a, if you watch, there's a movie on YouTube called Burn the Movie. It's about 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And when he was 21 years old, he was out demonstrating against segregation, getting arrested. He got arrested, chained to a black woman. (laughs) I mean, that. Bernie stands up for fairness and justice for everyone. He's uncompromising. He's been a voice in the wilderness for decades. He never, I mean, you can watch him on that Burn the Movie on YouTube, and, you know, he's sitting there in 1987, sounding like Bernie. And what he accomplished in Vermont when he was the mayor there and when he, uh, you know, took office there. I mean, Bernie is just, uh, I think Bernie will keep working for us until the day he passes over, whether he's president, senator, whatever. And I just, uh, I don't know, Bernie makes me cry. I don't know why he has that effect on people. Why do you think that is? I, I think it's nice to know that someone's genuine, Melinda, that, that they, they haven't gone through a, a conversion just in time to run for president. They actually genuinely believe what they're saying. Melinda, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And thank you for being with us today. Another great day. Uh, we'll see how the, uh, the all this nonsense with Trump, it's not nonsense, these, these you know criminal conspiracies shake out. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Do something. Get out there. Get active. Tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.